and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. Do we have any updates? Um, nothing that I can think of. Nothing for me either. So let's just get right into it. What week do you got? I have the week of June 7th through the 13th. Cool. Yeah. What are we doing? We're going to take a little trip on over to Russia. Ooh. And, <laughs> and then we're going to jump in the Wayback Machine and go to the early 17th century. Is the Wayback Machine a Vilicipiet? I have no idea what that is. A bicycle. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, no. I mean, think more TARDIS, less physical pedaling. Okay, well, uh, that I need to stop uh, on uh, on the way and we need to get a snack first. I'm going to go grab myself a yablica. Okay, well, while you eat that, I'm going to do the episode. Fine. <laughs> That's an apple, by the way. <laughs> Just showing off your knowledge. <laughs> That's about it. That's all I okay. got for Russian. That's great because the only Portuguese I know is thank you, cow, and farts. <laughs> yep. Thank you for cow farts. That's what you got. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> anyway, so did you know that Russia had not one, not two, but three pretenders to the throne? No. I I, I feel like I see it every time we look for like notes and stuff <laughs> like that, but I don't think I realized that what I was seeing was not... A repeat of the same pretender, but oh, in no. fact, different pretenders. Yeah, and guess what? They were all pretending to be the same person. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, did you know that one of them actually was crowned? Yes, I did. Okay. Yes. Cool, cool, cool. I did know that. <laughs> all right, so for all of you Russian history nerds out there, this week's topic is the crowning of false Dmitri I as the Tsar of Russia on June 10th, 1605. Fun. Oh, yeah. So we got to back up just a little bit first. So Ivan Vasilievich IV, more commonly known as Ivan the Terrible, ruled Russia from 1547 to 1584. Now, Ivan the Terrible could be, and probably eventually should be, a topic all on his own. So I'll save the more interesting stuff for then. The important thing to know now is that he had six or eight wives. The jury's still out on that one. Six or eight. Six or eight. Okay. Not six or seven. Six or eight, apparently. <laughs> we either forgot two or none of them. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's, that's a confusion. Um, and he also had eight children. Of those children, only three survived past the age of like five. Mm. So early childhood. Not a very good dad. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, his name is The Terrible. <laughs> yeah, Ivan The Terrible Dad. Yes, accurate. Um, and so one of those three children would die even before Ivan, leaving only two heirs. Unfortunately for the Tsarevich Dmitri Ivanovich, born on October 19th, 1582, the son of Ivan's last, last wife, Maria Nagaya, and their only child together, he didn't survive much longer than his father. On March 28th, 1584, Ivan the Terrible died of a stroke while playing chess Apparently, it was a very stressful game. My goodness. I know. Which left his eldest surviving son, Feodor Ivanovich I, to inherit the crown. Feodor, however, had very little interest in running a country or the health to do so. So he left the mon monotony of ruling to his wife's brother, Boris Gudinov. What's up with all these sick people in this family? 
I have no idea. They all <laughs> seem very sickly. <laughs> well, it was, you know, early 1600s. So, like, making it past child, like early childhood is a feat in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So, like, generally speaking, you lost more children than you had. Yeah, fair. So, the fact that only three survived childhood really isn't that surprising. And honestly, you were probably better off as the child of a, like, middle class kind of person than you were of royalty because if something was wrong with royalty the doctors were bleeding you and doing all of these really strange medical things and medical here is like very loose term what years was this 1605 is when he was crowned so it's late 1500s that is exactly the age of heroic medicine so yeah they would uh-huh. be just bleeding you dry yep. trying to get rid of uh, all bleeding of the bleeding you dry rubbing animal poop into whatever wound you had strapping a chicken to you yep <laughs> you had to drink like milk by the full moon yeah it was just really weird medicine and if you couldn't afford the really weird medicine and your illness wasn't as bad as it could be you were probably better off Anyway, <laughs> Anyways, so, back yeah. on topic. <laughs> Noble children did not have a great time um, until they survived childhood. So, uh, Boris Godunov. So, he sent Dmitri, his mother, and her brothers into internal exile in Dmitri's estate at the city of Uglich. And on May 15th, 1591, Dmitri died there under mysterious circumstances. Mysterious? Dun, dun, dun. Are you going to get to that? Yep. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so Russian chroniclers and later historians offered two possible scenarios of what could have happened to Dmitri. The first theory is that Dmitri was killed by the order of Gudunov, the assassins making it look like it was an accident, and this version was supported by prominent 19th century Russian historians. The critics of this version point out that Dmitri was Ivan's son from his fifth or possibly seventh marriage. I like how there's still the gap of two. (laughs) Yep, still the gap of two. And thus was illegitimate by canon law because the maximum of three marriages, like three marriages was a maximum allowed by the Russian Orthodox Church. After three, you you were done, (laughs) apparently. It was illegal. So this would make any claim of Dimitri's for the throne dubious at best. So modern scholarship tends to exonerate Boris of any role in the prince's death because it would, wouldn't have benefited him, or anyone, honestly. Fair. The second theory is that Dimitri stabbed himself in the throat during an epileptic seizure while playing with a knife. The dissidents of this scenario assert that since during an epilep- epileptic seizure, the palms are wide open, the self-infliction of a fatal wound becomes a little less likely. But the official investigation done at the time of his death, so, you know, not a lot of real knowledge going on there. Um, they asserted that the, the Zarevich's seizure came when he was playing a Svika game, which apparently includes like holding a knife pointed at yourself. Okay. So Sounds like was, my kind of game. <laughs> it sounds like a game you might have played with Nick. Oh, <laughs> man. Um, <laughs> nope, that was a kebab. Um, <laughs> so... You play the game by holding the knife, like the knife by the blade, turned towards yourself. So, with the knife in that position, the version of a self inflicted wound on the neck while falling forward during a seizure appears a lot more likely. Okay, I can buy it. Like, for now. just really bad luck, essentially. <laughs> so, there is a third theory which found support with some early historians. 
They considered it possible that Goodenough's people had tried to assassinate Dimitri, but killed somebody else by mistake, and he managed to escape. What? <gasps> right? So most modern Russian historians, however, consider the version of Dimitri's survival to be improbable, since it's really unlikely that the boy's appearance would have been completely unknown to his assassins. Right. So, yeah. Um, and as we're about to find out, most of the supporters of the various imposters didn't actually believe their claims to the throne either. Hmm. Okay. So, subjective. But this theory opens the gate for the appearance of our Dimitri. The death of Feodor on January 16th, 1598, left Russia without a legitimate heir and marked the end of the Rurikid dynasty and the beginning of what was known as the Time of Troubles. <laughs> for good reason. You got three imposters coming. <laughs> Is, shouldn't that just be the like slogan of Russia? Russia. Time of Troubles. The Time of Troubles. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> so Feodor was succeeded by the throne, uh, to the throne by none other than his most trusted advisor, good old Boris Goodenovich. Goodenov. Goodenovich. <laughs> You're just like it. putting the witches on everything. I like now. witches. <laughs> I've liked the witches. <laughs> You're not the witch. You're my wife. Not yet. I ain't. Get, 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 get. Two days. Well, no. by the time this comes okay. out, you will be. <laughs> then I really can say, I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. <laughs> anyway. Boris Gudunov. So Boris as czar was proposed by the Patriarch Job of Moscow, um, who was head of the Ro Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and he believed that Boris was the one man capable of coping with the difficulties of the situation, you know, no legitimate heir. So Boris, however, would accept the throne only from the Zemsky Sobor, which is like the National Assembly or like Congress, that kind of thing. Right. Which meant that on February 17th, Oh, which met on February 17th and unanimously elected him on February 21st. So no opposition, apparently. He was then crowned czar on September 1st. And fun fact, while czar Boris, uh, Boris actually made improvements to Russia, at least for the nobles. But it was his decree in 1597 as like regnant, essentially, like he was, you know, reigning for the czar because the czar couldn't be bothered. Yep. Um. He made a law that forbade peasants to transfer from one landowner to another, which they had previously been free to do each year around St. George's Day in November, which bound them to the land itself. Ah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So the aim was to secure revenue, but it led to the institution of serfdom in its most oppressive form. Ah, fun. So, yes. Good. Bad job on you, Boris. Well, it's not like the actual czar was paying attention. So. I mean, that's true. <laughs> I, I think I think you blame the czar. I would blame all of them. Yep. <laughs> all of the above. Eat the rich. <laughs> so uh, after Boris's death in April of 1605, his only son, Feodor II, ruled for a couple of months until he and Boris's widow were murdered by the enemies of the Gudnovs in Moscow in June. I wonder why he and the widow were married. I mean, we're murdered. It's because they were <laughs> fooling like, around. He did not murder. He did not marry his mother. <laughs> oh, that's his mom. Yeah, that would have been oh, his mom. Because Fedor lost... II was Boris's son, so Boris's yes. widow would have yes, been his he... mommy. I I forgot about that connection already. <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep Yikes. going. <laughs> that's a whole new version of incest. Anyway, so now enter Dimitri, stage left. 
He had first arrived on the scene in 1600 after making a positive impression on the Patriarch Job of Moscow with his learning and his assurance. Of course, hearing this, Tsar Boris ordered him to be seized and examined, so Dmitri fled to Prince Konstantin Ostrogsky in Ostro of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. There's a lot of words in there. And then subsequently entered the service of the (laughs) Wisniewicz, a (laughs) Polonized Ruthenian family. Of course, Dmitri's story caused quite a bit of interest from this family as it gave the Poles a real opportunity to capitalize on the political rancor rising in Moscow. There were even rumors going around that Dmitri was actually an illegitimate son of the Polish king, Stefan Battery, who had reigned from 1575 to 1586. And according to a later tale, Dmitri actually like blurted that out, um, that that's who he was once when he was slapped by a violent master. What? Yeah, like apparently, I I would assume it was like he got hit and then he went, don't you know who I am kind of thing. Oh, and then accidentally said his real name, not his fake name. Right, right. And like, I mean, all of this is speculation at this point because there's no way to prove any of it. So I thought we were in the Wayback Machine. We should be able to prove it. I mean, you want to get out and deal with the Russians at this time period? I certainly don't. I'll stay on the Velisipiet. I am quite content in my TARDIS. All right. So... Dmitri's own story was that his mother had anticipated Boris Gudunov's assassination attempt, and so she had given the young Tsarevich into the care of a doctor who placed him in various Russian monasteries throughout the years. After the doctor's death, Dmitri had then fled to Poland, working there as a teacher for a brief time before being accepted into the service of the Wisniewicz. Several of those who had known Ivan IV claimed later that Dmitri did indeed resemble the young Tsarevich, Further, the young man also displayed aristocratic tendencies like uh, good horsemanship and was literate, which at this time was a feat in and of itself, and was fluent in Russian, Polish, and French. So a pretty well-educated guy to not have, you know, a background that would have allowed for an education, theoretically. Unless, you know, he was the illegitimate of a king, in which case, yeah, he would have gotten a lot of that. Are you hinting towards something or are you just guessing? I'm just saying that that's what I think he, that's who I think he probably was, but. You heard it first. This is the Kylie, the Kylie Bickford uh, <laughs> proposal. I mean, that, that's, that's what my hunch is. But... Add, add that to the fourth option of uh, how this all went down. <laughs> oh, well, there'll be another fifth option. So this is fun. Um, so whether or not Dimitri's claims are true. The Wisniewic brothers and some other Polish noblemen soon agreed to fully back him and his claim against Tsar Boris Goodenough. So, in pursuit of support, Dmitri visited the royal court of Sigismund Vasa III, who was king of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania at the time, in Krakow in March of 1604. And there he converted to Roman Catholicism, convincing the papal nuncio Claudio Rangoni to also back up his claim. So, getting Roman Catholic support for Russia, which would have like, not been in agreement at all. <laughs> yeah, weird. Yeah. So, when Boris Gudunov received word of Dmitri's Polish support, he spread claims of the younger man being just a runaway monk named Grigory Otrepyev. This claim had no basis in evidence, at least as far as we know, 
But when has a little thing like facts ever stopped a power-hungry politician? Never. Never. But I digress. <laughs> the Tsar's public support soon began to wane, especially as Dmitry's loyalists spread counter-rumors. Several Russian boyars also pledged themselves to Dmitry, thus giving them a legitimate reason not to pay their taxes. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So, like, maybe they didn't actually believe that Dmitry really was who he claimed to be, but thought it was much better than paying their taxes. So, I mean, hey. fair, fair. Yep. So at this point, Dmitry chose to make his move, gathering a small army of his various supporters and advancing on Russia in March of 1605. On the move, his army was joined by some of Boris's many enemies, and the ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow captured Chernigov. All righty. <laughs> and a couple of other cities along the way. <laughs> mm. But they didn't fit the beat, so they didn't get included. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately for Dmitri, they didn't win the next battle, and it almost completely destroyed his small army. Luckily, though, his cause was saved when the news of the sudden death of Tsar Boris reached his troops. <laughs> Good news, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> With the unpopular Tsar dead, the, the last impediment to Dmitri's progress had been swept away by the wings of fate. The victorious Russian troops defected to Dmitri's side, followed soon by the others, swelling the Polish ranks as they marched further into Russia. Finally, on June 1st, the disaffected boyars of, boyars of Moscow staged a palace coup, imprisoning the newly crowned Tsar Feodor II and his mother, allowing Dmitri to sweep into Moscow and be crowned Tsar. So Dmitri's first move to, quote, legitimize himself was to visit his mother, Maria Nagaya. Oh, well, that sounds like a very bad idea. Well... Not for him, it wasn't. What? Yeah. So he went to visit her in the convent where she had been living since her, you know, Ivan IV's death. So Maria accepted Dmitri as her son and confirmed his story. Mind you, though, it would have been in her benefit to have her son on the throne. I know, but still very strange. Yeah, well, I mean, it was Russia. <laughs> Name cookie Russians. <laughs> so the Gunovs, including... Tsar Fedor and his mother were killed by the, uh, with the exception of the Zarevna Zania, who Dmitri apparently kept as a concubine for five months, but not with her consent. Uh oh. Yeah, not great. Not good. Does concubine uh, imply consent? I didn't well, think it did. I mean, it it depends. Like, I feel like. Prob I mean, well, I think no. if it depends, yeah, I think I mean, if it like depends it <laughs> whether if the word concubine implies consent, and you're like, well, it depends. The answer is no. It just so happens that maybe some concubines did consent. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was also going to say that probably a lot of wives didn't consent to their marriages either, but that was neither here nor there at the time. Well, that has nothing to do with the two people that were party to what was going on. That is true. Yes. Um. So he kept her as a concubine. Um. So in contrast to Gudunov's policies, many of the noble families that Tsar Boris had exiled were granted a pardon by Tsar Dmitri and were allowed to return to Moscow. Fyodor Romanov, sire of the future imperial dynasty, was soon appointed as Metropolitan of Rostov. The old patriarch Job, who did not recognize the new Tsar, even though he had said, hey, he's, you know, like very accomplished and stuff. 
uh, was sent into exile. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. He backed out of it and they went, goodbye. So as czar, Dmitry planned to introduce a series of political and economic reforms. He restored Yuri's Day, the day when serfs were allowed to move to another lord to ease the conditions of peasantry. Heyo. And his favorite at the Russian court, the 18-year-old Prince Ivan Kavorstinin, was considered by historians to be one of Russia's first westernizers. So, modernizers also. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in foreign policy, Dmitry sought an alliance with his sponsor, the Polish Commonwealth, and the Papal States. He planned for war against the Ottoman Empire, ordering the mass production of firearms to serve in the conflict. In his correspondence, he referred to himself as, quote, Emperor of Russia, a full century before the Tsar Peter I used that title for real. Huh. So he had some lofty goals. Yeah. <laughs> so Dmitri's royal depictions featured him as clean-shaven with slicked-back dark hair, which was an un unusual style for the era when big beards were in. Mm -hmm. I like big beards and I cannot lie. All right. <clears throat> You just shaved your so shame on you. Just kidding. Wow. No, you do not need to be a wild I, man for our wedding. Yep. Thank you. No, nope. I'm never ever gonna trim my beard. No, no, again. no, no, no. This no, is what no. you've done. I messed up. Please. Reap what you sow. <laughs> oh no. Anyway. <laughs> so unfortunately for Dimitri, the beginning of his downfall was, in fact, a woman. As normal. Hey. Yep. <laughs> On May 8th, 1606, Tsar Dmitry I married Marina Nizyak, who was Catholic. Now, this normally wouldn't be an issue because typically the bride of a Tsar would convert to Eastern Orthodox Christianity if she were from another faith. Faith, However, Dmitry saw this union as a chance to bring the Russian Orthodox Church and the Holy See closer together. Rumors started circulating that Dmitry had obtained the support of the Polish king Sigismund and Pope Paul V by promising to reunite the two faiths, which angered the Russian Orthodox Church. Because, you know, they wouldn't have had a church. Um, as well as the boyars and the general population. <laughs> the resentful Prince Vasily Shusky, head of the boyars, began to plot against the Tsar, accusing Dmitry of spreading Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and sodomy. This gained support with boyars and the masses, especially as Dmitri surrounded himself with foreigners who all flouted the Russian customs. And according to Russian chronicler Avrami Palitsny, Dmitri further enraged many Muscovites by permitting his Catholic and Protestant soldiers, whom the Russian church regarded as heretics, to pray in Orthodox churches, which was a big old no, no, no. Yeah, no, no, not good. Prince Vasily's adherents began spreading word that Tsar Dmitry was about to order his Polish retainers to lock the city gates and massacre the people of Moscow. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Whether such an order actually existed um, is questionable, but the Chronicle reported it as undeniable fact, which obviously caused a lot of panic. On the morning of May 17th, 1606, just 10 days after Dimitri's marriage to the Zarina Marina, which I just really like saying. <laughs> Zarina Marina. Zarina Marina. <laughs> um, a massive number of boyars and commoners stormed the Kremlin. Dimitri tried to flee, jumping out of a window and fracturing his leg in the fall, but he managed to flee to a bathhouse <laughs> where he attempted to hide, but was recognized. Duh. 
and (laughs) dragged out before the populace by the boyars, who executed him right there, lest he successfully muster an appeal to the crowd. His body was put on display and then cremated, with the ashes allegedly shot from a cannon towards Poland. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's how I What want... a way to go. <laughs> That's how I want my like cremated remains to do. I want them shot from a cannon. <laughs> Where do you want them pointed? Um, I'll have to think more about that. I'm not sure yet, but I'm sure I'll figure it out. All right. You best not be asking me as you plan to murder me. <laughs> Says the person who's been talking about murdering me all week. Your mom started it. I don't think she did. <laughs> she definitely encouraged it. <laughs> she made a joke about it. And now it's on the podcast. Oh, no. And all all of our listeners will know that if it, we disappear, that's what happened. Kylie was after my life insurance. And apparently your mom was after both of them. (laughs) Probably. I wouldn't doubt it. And I know (laughs) you're listening, mother. Anyway. (laughs) So according to that chronicler, whose name I don't want to pronounce again, Dimitri's death was followed by the massacre of his supporters. Womp womp. The chronicler boasted in his chronicle that, quote, a great amount of heretical blood was spilled in the streets of Moscow. So the streets ran red with blood. Of heretics. <laughs> so Dimitri's reign had lasted a mere 11 months. Prince Vasily then took his place as Tsar Vasily IV of Russia. However, two further imposters later appeared. False Dimitri II and False Dimitri III. FYI, this Dimitri is called False Dimitri I. <laughs> ah. But I thought the name would give it away too early. <laughs> right. So the first of whom, the first of the... Other two Dimitris, so Dimitri II, was publicly accepted by the Tsarina Marina as her f- fallen husband. So the wife was like, yeah, that's him. These wives and mothers just being like, sure, why not? As long as it keeps me in the royal family. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, it was probably self-preservation because I could totally imagine her if she was like, nope, that's not him. Someone would just have her killed. Like So weird. Yeah, it was not a great time. So, who was Dimitri I, or false Dimitri I? Historians mostly consider the first pretender to have been Grigory, or Yuri, Bogdanovich Otrepiev, a member of the gentry who had frequented the House of the Romanovs before becoming the monk Grigory, and apparently sincerely believed that he was actually the legitimate heir to the throne. Okay, that's an interesting twist. Yeah, but of course, where one fake almost succeeded, someone else was bound to try as well. False Dimitri II was likely a priest's son or a converted Jew who was highly educated for the time, speaking both Russian and Polish, and was something of an expert in liturgical matters. The widowed Zarina Marina's father, quote, reunited False Dimitri II with his grieving daughter, who miraculously recognized her late husband in the second Dimitri, although they looked nothing alike. Like, if you, like, Google them, they're like portraits on, like, just on the Wikipedia page. Look nothing alike. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so this brought him the support of the magnates of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, who had supported False Dimitri I, and supplied him with some early funds and around 7,500 soldiers. False Dimitri II and his army captured several towns, advancing upon Moscow in 1608, routing the army of the Tsar. Promises of the wholesale confiscation of the estates of the boyars drew many common people to his side, hoping to get a little piece of that land. 
His forces soon exceeded 100,000 men, so he got himself quite the army at the end of it. He raised he was raised to the rank of patriarch another illustrious captive, Philaret Romanoff, that name again, and won the allegiance of several more cities, setting up a command at Tushino. Thereafter, he became known as the Thief of Tushino. Um, however, the arrival of King Sigismund III of Vasa at Smolensk caused a majority of his Polish supporters to desert him and join the armies of the Polish king. At the same time, a strong Russo-Swedish army was approaching, which forced him to flee his camp disguised as a peasant and go to Kostroma, where Marina joined him, and he lived once more in regal state. Why didn't you say Zarina Marina? Because I wrote Marina because I'm a dummy. (laughs) It felt so wrong hearing just Marina. Sorry, do you want me to repeat it so that we can repeat it right now? (laughs) At the same time, a strong Russo-Swedish army was approaching, forcing him to flee his camp disguised as a peasant and go to Kostroma, where Zarina Marina joined him, and he lived once more in regal state. See, that just sounded so much better. Yeah, right. I'll give it to you. So he made another unsuccessful attack on Moscow, and supported by the Don Cossacks recovered a hold over all of southeastern Russia. However, he was killed while half-drunk on December 11th, 1610, by a princeling, Peter Urasov, who he had flogged before, or like earlier that day. Oh! <laughs> so he was drunk. Well, he flogged someone, was drunk, and then the angry flogged person probably like got in like a fist fight or something like him, and because he was drunk... He couldn't manage and died. I would say that this was probably not third degree murder. It sounds like it was second degree murder. Yeah. I mean, one could also Impassioned, potentially... not planned, but intended. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, yep. I would agree with that assessment. Using my knowledge from the last episode. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> So the third Dimitri imposter fared even worse than his predecessors. Supposedly, a deacon called Sidorka. <laughs> Sorry. Sidorka. Sidorka. I can't. Okay. I feel bad if anyone listening is named Sidorka, but my God. What do you what do you go by? Seti? Or Dorka? I ho- no, I hope it's not Dorka. <laughs> I hope it's not Dorka. I don't Dorka. think they would go by Dorka. <laughs> Does that mean something in Russian? I have no idea. Oh, okay. I, the way he said, I hope not Dorka, I was like, oh gosh, it's like a swear or like a bad slang or something. No, it just sounds like dork. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I was laughing. <laughs> anyway, Sidorka. He appeared suddenly. A lovely name. <laughs> he appeared suddenly from behind the river Narva in the Ing- Ingrian town of Ivangorod, proclaiming himself the Tsarevich Dmitri Ivanovich. On March 28th, 1611, the Cossacks, ravaging the area of Moscow, acknowledged him as Tsar on March 2nd of 1612. And under the threat of vengeance in case of noncompliance, the gentry, the gentry of Ksav also swore allegiance, earning him the nickname the Thief of Ksav. On May 18th, 1612, he fled from there and was seized and delivered up to the authorities at Moscow, where he was secretly executed. Secretly executed. Secrets. Okay. So only one false Dimitri managed to actually get a crown on his head and was essentially dethroned because because of religion and a woman. 
and it feels a little Samson and Delilah if you ask me. Although it wasn't really intentional betrayal in this case, just kind of bad choices. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for anyone wondering what happened with the Time of Troubles, it ended not long after Dmitry III's death with the election of Michael Romanov as Tsar by the Zemsky Sobor in 1613, which established the Romanov dynasty, which ruled Russia until the February Re- Revolution of 1917. And that is the wild story of the false Dimitris. That was a wild story of false Dimitris. Yeah. Yep. Surprised there were so many that tried <laughs> that, and also so many people who just kind of went along I- with it just because. Yep. Yep, that's that is where my question arises too. At what point do you go, you're good enough to pretend to be my husband? Or you're good enough to pretend to be my son. Yeah, yeah. this is fine. I mean, it seemed to go worse for each individual person after the first, uh-huh. but it was still funny how many people were like, yeah, we'll give it a shot. Yeah, that's why not try. Like, I can pe- pretend to be this child who's now been dead for like over a decade. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Anyways, time for our call to action. Yes. So you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find our website at www.halfwit-history.com. And you can support us on uh, ko-fi, ko-fi.com forward slash Halfwit History. You can also send us emails to halfwitpod at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, and if you have any corrections for my Russian, please send me a soundbite of you pronouncing it better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then if you do it wrong, I will also mercilessly mock you. Yeah, we'll just so. put it right on the podcast and just have all your bad Russian. Yeah. No, we probably won't. <laughs> no, we're, we're too lazy to do that. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not that we don't want to make fun of you, but... <laughs> it's not the lack of pettiness, it's the lack of motivation. Uh-huh. Anyways, I <laughs> uh, also want to give a thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to his SoundCloud down in our show notes, and we both did it that time. <laughs> but you used both hands, which is a little weird. <laughs> you That's what you did last time. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh-huh. It was really late. I was Weirdo. very tired. <laughs> you started it. <laughs> I okay. don't finish it. I'm just kidding. Are we on to fun facts? Yes, please. Awesome. Okay. Go, I'll go, 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 bring go. opening mine. Oh, no, I minimized the, the picture. There we go. Joga. Joga. Oh. <laughs> We're not playing nothing. <laughs> Could be. Okay. Whoop. <laughs> oh, that's the other Portuguese word I know. Joga. Joga, yep. <laughs> Okay, so we have on June 7th of 1965, Sony Corporation introduced its home videotape recorder, which was priced at $995. (laughs) (laughs) Woof. My God, the the video recorder that you, you know, everyone from like the 90s at least associates with like (sighs) their dad's camcorder. Oh my gosh. $995. My God. Every Christmas, we would have to wait upstairs for my dad to set up his stupid recording thing. So that we could walk downstairs and pretend we hadn't already seen all of the gifts from the banister in my parents' room. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, what's your fun fact? My fun fact comes from June 12th, 1963. Cleopatra, directed by Joseph Mankiewicz and starring Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, premiered in New York City and was then the most expensive film ever made at $44 million. 
or in two days, money. $386,525,524, or thereabouts. The uh, inflation calculator wouldn't let me calculate more than $10 million at once, so I had to do some math. Well, that's very strange. Yep. So, a slightly re- a related fun fact, even though it was the highest grossing film of that year, it still didn't make back its cost on its original release. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I do remember reading mm-hmm. about that at some mm-hmm. point. I forget what article I was reading, but that that popped up and I'm like, whoa. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So today, the official most expensive film is Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Whoa, that sucks. (laughs) Coming in at a whopping budget of 870... Nope. $870. Shit, no. $378.5 Or... Four million four hundred four hundred forty nine million three hundred sixty five thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars in two thousand and twenty one. Good lord, guys! <laughs> why it wasn't even good, and you know it. You you had to have known that yeah. you weren't making a good movie. There's no way. <laughs> there's no way you thought you'd recoup that. What was wrong with you? You didn't all? even have. Cast, like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh my god! <gasps> so on, yeah, on that depressing note, <laughs> better than your last episode. Oh, stop! <laughs> it was informative. It made me cry twice. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that's been our show. We hope you've enjoyed listening, and as always, I've been your halfwit, and I'm your historian, and we hope you listen next week. Bye. Me. Mm-hmm.